Good morning, everybody. How you all doing? Yeah, good. It's a nice sunny day. It's not windy. I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm putting a timer on. In fact, a, yeah, a, um, a timer so it, it will buzz because otherwise... Uh, I do I just want to give you a little bit of a heads up. I think it's a, uh, no, not an hour and 35. No, 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 no. no. Uh, there we go. Um, I think this morning might be just a wee bit longer than normal, but um, I hope it's I hope it's going to be worth it. Uh, if you're a guest, my name is Matt, one of the leaders here. I want to welcome you, and uh, I do hope that you have a good time with us um, this morning. And uh, so we we've um, been saying that we're in a in a season. Uh, we think God's kind of got us in a season of um, coming back to basics, right? Just taking a little bit of stock, just evaluating where we at. Uh, and, and in February, we, we went through that series. We were just looking at, well, are we following Jesus? Are we, are we too busy? Are there things that we need to cut out? Um, and uh, we're also looking at uh, a series now called I Believe. We're looking at the basics of the Christian faith. And, and we're asking ourselves, well, what do we believe? But more importantly than that, we're wanting to ask ourselves the question, I say I believe this. Is it really impacting my life? Is it really causing a change in my life? Or am I, am I saying this, but I'm actually doing other things? Which really indicates that I believe in other things. And this is just a nice little add-on. Um, and so, so what is it that we believe? And is it really impacting our lives? And so we've been using the Apostles' Creed. And that's been around for about 1,800 years. And uh, that's a nice summary of the basics of um, the Christian faith, and so uh, I'd love to read it again and invite you to join me in reading it aloud uh, if you're comfortable to do so. I, I think a WhatsApp went out this morning to the men's group and the ladies' group, and, and if you're not on that group, maybe someone next to you has it and can send it to you, or you can read over their shoulder, or you can just listen in. Right, so the Apostles' Creed I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And if anyone's just wondering, the Holy Catholic Church, that word Catholic in its sort of older original meaning means universal or broader. So we're talking about believing in, in the broader church. So uh, stay tuned for two Sundays time and, and Philip will be landing the series for us on uh, the Holy Catholic Universal Church. So today what we're going to be doing, it's my wonderful privilege to be looking at the statement, He will come to judge the living and the dead. Right, so a few things I want to say as we start off with. If you're a guest, welcome! It's, it's, it's great to have you. I do want to say that this is in the context of a series. Um, and uh, I, I try to have a look at, at my notes, and, and the last time we preached on judgment, I'm trying to remember, in fact, Michiel, I think it may have been you, when was that, 2017, somewhere there, so it's 
spends quite some time. So we're not the church that, you know, hits the judgment thing all the time, but it is part of our central beliefs. And uh, perhaps for some of us, maybe we've been Christians for a short time or even a long time. Maybe we even feel a little uncomfortable with that. And so today is a good opportunity for us to look at that afresh. Uh, the second thing I want to say is no one likes this topic, at least no one who's in a healthy state of mind. No one wants to talk about um, judgment. And, and I, I recognize that many of us here will have different views on this. Maybe we've got different church backgrounds, different upbringings. Maybe you came from that household or that upbringing where you heard the hellfire and damnation and judgment regularly. Um, and so I'm really trusting and praying that God is going to speak to your heart and my heart where you are at and where I'm at. That God actually has something to say to you this morning. And I want to encourage you to open your heart to that. Not necessarily to me, but to what God is saying. What does the scripture say? What does God say? Uh, and the third thing I want to say, and we've been saying it a lot in this particular um, series, is there's, there's a lot to say on judgments. And I've got 30 minutes. I'm going to try and stick to 30 minutes, a little bit more. Um, so I'm not going to be able to cover everything. This is not a comprehensive theological survey. I'm going to try and hit a couple of key things. If you feel like we've missed some things out, I probably have. And I, want, I really want to encourage you to explore this more. I want to encourage you in life groups to explore this a little bit further and to talk about this. And many people may have strong feelings about this. And life group is a really great place to bring up those strong feelings and to say, hey, this is, this is what I think. Let's talk. Let's process this together. So with that in mind, I invite you please to turn to Revelation chapter 20, last book of the Bible. Uh, think of it like this. This is kind of like one of the bookends of the big story of God's redemptive story. And now we get to like the very end and, and this is the final chapter and God's coming into land this great story of redemption it's great if you can get your eyes on it whether it's an app or um, an actual book of the bible revelation chapter 20 verse 11 to 15 then i saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Whoever is sitting on this throne is incredible in their brilliance. And so everything flees away. Earth and sky flees away. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so we, we get to the end of human story, human history. We're looking to the end, and everyone who's ever lived is raised up, and they now stand before this great throne of judgment. And Jesus is seated on this throne, and he's going to judge everyone according to what they have done. 
and anyone whose name is not written in this book of life, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I can totally imagine, in fact, I've probably done this often myself, I've asked myself the question, what is it with you Christians and your love of judgment? Right? Have you, have you ever, why are there so many negative, just judgy, judgy, so judgy? Right? You look like you've been sucking lemons. You know, in fact, my dad's got this wonderful saying. He says, it looks like you've been baptized in lemon juice. Right? You're just submerged and it's sour and it's bitter and just... Blah. Why are you Christians so judgy, negative, miserable? So I have, I have a question for you. I've, I've asked this question once before. So if you, if you know the answer, then don't answer it. But ask yourself this question. Christians... Are they supposed to be optimists or pessimists? Should Christians be optimists or pessimists? And we, we can't be optimists. Right? You can't be eternally optimistic. Because we know that there's enough suffering, there's enough hardship in this world for us to not be, everything's fine, God is good, it's great, bless you brother. You know, and you put the church face on Sunday morning, say, it's lovely. But we just know, you know, there's highs, but there's lows. We know that there's stuff in this world. You can't be eternally optimistic, but you can't be 100% pessimist all the time. Can you? Because we're supposed to have the good news. In fact, we make the claim that we have the best news that there ever was. And so as Christians, we should be living in a state of permanent tension. Well, we, we know about goodness. We know what goodness is. But we also know what sadness is. What horror is. We know what injustice is. We know that things are not right. And we have these two things in tension. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to let you know this. This is the, uh, the way that I'm thinking. Here's my, my steps, the argument. There's bad news. There's good news, and then there's implications. Okay, there's bad news, and there's good news, and then I want to look at the implications, because that's the series that we're in. If we say we believe this, what, how does that actually shape my life? So let's, let's talk about the bad news. Let's talk about, you, you, you know this little test, is it half full, half empty? Right? It's half. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's, let's talk about the half empty first. Right, so we will be judged according to what we have done. If you have a six-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl, whatever it is, and, and they, they're good at playing soccer, aren't you really good? Now, they're only good because they're playing under six. But if they go play under ten, are they still good? Yeah, not so much. You, you know when you're in, when you're in, in, in preschool... And, and that little preschooler, or maybe you've got a grandson, or whatever it is, and, and it's time for them to go to big school. That's right? so a grade one. You're so big, my girl. You're so big, my boy. And they, do they feel big when they get there? I mean, they feel big in the morning. Everyone's making a big fuss. But when they get there, they're going to see the grade threes, or the grade fives, or the grade sevens. Grade sevens are huge. Do they, do they feel big? No, they're only big because it's compared to what they were. Now you're big. Now you get to go to big school. And when you're in grade seven, standard five, right, you think like top dog. We're the big fish now. And then you get to high school and what happens? 
Or, or maybe it takes a few weeks, you just need to be reminded that you're not, not so great after all. And then, then you get to matric and you feel like, yo, this is big. And then you get into the big wide world. Then you don't feel so big anymore. Right? And so when we say you're good, we're creating a standard of comparison, a standard of measurement in our minds. We are creating the standard. That, that's good. But good according to who? Or to what? We create that standard in our minds. And so God, will, God teaches that there will be a day when all people will be judged. According to what standard will we be measured? What are we going to be measured against? Other people? Is your politeness going to be enough? Is your faithfulness to your spouse going to dictate whether you are good? Were you a good parent? Did you avoid swearing? Did you give to the poor? Were you a peacemaker? Did you just avoid prison? Like, what's the standard? You know? Or if you went to prison, were you just, you know, not as bad as the others? What are we talking about here? What's the standard? Romans 3 verse 23 says, All have sinned, all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. Can you meet the standard of the glory of God? Can I meet the standard of the glory of God? Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6. In fact, Kelv read both of these scriptures last week. We have all become one, like one who is unclean. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds, the best deeds, are like a polluted garment, or a filthy garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Have you seen the wind blowing those leaves up? Blowing them away? Our iniquity, our sin, has to, have we all become like that? Really? Aren't some people good? Right? You know some good people. We know good people. They're not Christians, but they're good. In fact, they're, they're a lot better than many Christians we know. Maybe you know good people who you think actually they're better than you. Right? Maybe they're kinder. Maybe they're better with their kids. Maybe they treat their spouse better. Right? What about good people? So Jonathan Edwards, reformer, pastor, preacher, talks about two types of behavior. He talks about common virtue and true virtue, right? So the seemingly good in humans and then that which is truly good from God. And he contrasts these. And so if we take an example, the common virtue of honesty. I'm sure we would agree it's good to be honest. And we want someone to be good. The problem is, is that honesty can actually be motivated by bad things. Maybe fear. Maybe pride. Maybe honesty is the motivation of fear is because, well, otherwise you're going to get caught. If you lie on your tax returns, you're going to end up being fined or go to prison. So let's just be honest about it. Or maybe it's, maybe it's pride. No, I'm better than those people. Don't, don't be like those liars. Right? And so I'm going to be honest because I'm better than. And actually, that's pride. That's not good. It looks good, doesn't it? But deep down inside, whether I know it or not, it's very easy for me to actually have false motivations 
And so it looks like a virtue, but it's not a true virtue. It looks good, but it's not truly good. Now, we can be grateful for common virtues. I mean, that's why we've got laws, haven't we? So that we can live as a society and so that there can be some good things in the world. But common virtue causes us to live with a tension in our hearts. Because if, let's use that example, fear and pride are the things motivating me towards those good things, fear and pride can also motivate me towards not good things. And it's only a matter of time until that thin little veneer, that little facade collapses. Tim Keller says, common virtue has not done anything to root out the fundamental cause of evil, the underlying cause of evil. It's restrained the heart, but it hasn't changed the heart. This jury rigging of the heart creates a fragile condition. Through all the sermons, all the moral training you received throughout your life, you were actually nurturing the roots of sin in your moral life. This is true whether you grew up liberal or conservative. The roots of evil were well protected beneath that veneer of moral progress. So, I'm good. I'm good. I can stand at the judgment day, really. Are you? Am I? I don't know. My motivations are shot. I'm going to quote Martin Luther again. I've, I've used this quote a number of times. I'm going to use it again. I think it's good. All those who do not at all times trust God and trust in His favor, grace, and goodwill, but actually seek His favor in other things or in themselves, do not keep the first commandment. So the first commandment is worship God alone. Don't make idols. And so if we don't seek trust in God at all times, but trust in His favor, grace, and goodwill, or seek favor in other things, we do not keep that first commandment. And we practice real idolatry, even if they were to do the works of all the other commandments combined. I'm pretty good. I got nine out of ten. Really? It's idolatry. I've broken the first one. And so actually we see that goodness can have its motives shot and be full of idolatry, breaking that very first commandment. And so, if we obey God's law without a belief that we are already accepted and loved in Christ, then in all our good deeds, we're actually putting our hope in something or someone other than Jesus. And they are the real source and meaning of our happiness. We may be trusting in our good parenting, my moral uprightness, my spiritual performance, right? I'm a life group leader now. I've got prayed in on Sunday. Are you trusting in that? Is that going to get you to stand before the Lord one day? No, it's not. If that's what you're trusting in, it's not. If we aren't already sure that God loves us in Christ, we'll be looking to something else for our significance or self-worth. And that's why Luther says we're committing idolatry. Is that, are you using that to get to God? Is that thing number one in your life? Are you finding your significance in that thing or that person? And so if that example of pride or fear is there, we may find ourselves in years to come saying, I never thought I would have done that. I never thought I would cheat on my tax. I never thought I would 
cheat on my spouse. I never thought I would say those words, post that thing on social media, bash, break that thing, whatever it is. Because actually, there was that underlying condition and we were fooling ourselves. So Luther and Edward show us that our motivation for doing good things is at its core warped and actually self-deceiving. Not only are our actions sinful, but the motive is twisted and turned away from God. Baptized in lemon juice, eh? Negative. Why are we so negative all the time? This is the bad news. This is the bad news. This is the condition of our hearts. This is why Jesus can say in Matthew 7, and, and this, this passage has really bothered me this week. I, I feel like it's, it's been poking at me. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, on that great judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What? What? Casting out demons and doing mighty works. Because I don't don't reach that standard. And they come to Jesus and say, didn't we do those things? And he says, I didn't know you. You workers of lawlessness. What? That's because our hearts are deceitful. If you want to get into heaven because you get to do these things, if you want to earn your way to heaven, you want to earn your way into significance and meaning. Nope. It's a work of lawlessness. This is bad news. So let's talk about the full half of the glass, shall we? Let's talk about the good news. Let's move away from the lemon juice. Right, John chapter 3, verse 16 to 21. We all know verse 16. And I want you to keep the day of judgment in mind. Right? Revelation, what we've read. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light, Jesus, has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so scripture is very clear that Jesus comes to save us from judgment. Are you saved? Saved from what? Saved on the day of judgment. Saved from yourself. How exactly are we saved? How are we saved? What what are we talking about? Well, Jesus became sin for us. He didn't just deal with it. He became sin for us and was murdered for us. Took the judgment of God 
for us. And then on that day of judgment, who's the judge? Jesus. The one who took judgment of God upon himself for us is the one who comes to judge. And on that day, he will recognize us if we've put our faith in him. If we've come to him as he is the light, we've stepped towards him. We've said, Jesus, I accept your sacrifice on my behalf. I accept you having tapped out in the wrestling ring. I got out, you got in, and you took on the judgments of God. And so Jesus will know that judgment has already taken place. Justice has already been fulfilled. There's no reason for God to execute justice on us again. If Jesus has taken on our sin for us, justice has been executed. And so we are able to stand on that day of judgment because Jesus took the fall for us. That's good news. That's amazing news. I don't have to stress about the day of judgment because that day of judgment for me has already come. It's fallen on Christ. For you, if you've put your faith in Christ, that judgment of God has fallen on him. So there's, there's bad news. There is an eternal judgment. And there's no goodness in us that will stand. It is not sufficient. We fall short of the glory of God. And there's many great things that people have done. Many. We can start to raise the objections and start to list the people. What about so-and-so? Good, good, good. Yeah, yes, yes. Good. Compared to me, good. Absolutely. Compared to most people, but to everyone, good. Except, does it meet the standard of the glory of God? Absolute perfection? No, it doesn't. If you, in fact, if they think they get to stand before God because of those things, there's, there's trouble. And so, there's bad news, but there's good news. Praise God for Jesus. Yeah. Praise God for Jesus. He took on that, that judgment. So, so in this series, we're saying, well, if you believe that, so what? Do you, is that shaping your life somehow? So I'm going to talk about a few implications. You believe that Jesus took your judgment for you. You've accepted that. You believe you're going to stand one day at the day of judgment and be able to stand because Christ stood for you. Does that change anything for you? Right, a couple of implications. Number one, confidence. Confidence. It's not self-confidence. You get to stand at the day of judgment. I, Dean's not going to stand on Dean. Dean's been good enough. No, Dean knows that Dean's not good enough. Right? Inga, she's not standing in self-confidence. Philip, she's not standing in self-confidence. Confidence in Christ. One of, one of my favorite bands has got this song, and it's called Blood Pressure. And he's just talking about need to do, need to do, need to do. And he's talking about this judgment day, and it's stressing because he needs to make sure he's good. No. I'm freed from high blood pressure of needing to perform for God. I don't need to. Second thing is peace. We have peace because of Jesus taking on that judgment for us. And so there is a righteous judge. He will judge. I don't know about you, but when I see injustice, I get a little bit angry and upset. 
How about when people get away with injustice? Then my blood pressure goes through the roof. Right? We just need to read the news and a little bit of politics and... Right? World news as well. And there's people getting away with stuff. And it, it irks me. So I can get either angry or I can feel hopeless. What good is it? What good is all this work we do when this person comes in and just messes it all up? On a grand scale. It's wrong. It's not right. You are correct. And we should seek justice. In fact, I, I, I believe that's part of bringing God's kingdom is bringing justice where there's been injustice. But the good news is, is that even when people get away with it, they will not get away with it. They will be held to account one day. And that brings me peace. I believe that should bring us peace. And I, I hope that you don't think that I've got this 100% right. These are things that I wrestle with and I have to remind myself, no wait, there's a judge, it's not me, it's God. Okay, I can get off the little judgment throw and I can get off my, what am I doing this for? This is all meaning, no, no, no. there's a judge. I also think that a healthy theology of a great judgment day should encourage us towards non-violence. I think it encourages us for a non-violent society. Let's, I'm going to use an example here. Let's assume you have a friend and they have some special forces training. They have some special skills where they can take people out like this, nice and easy. Now, now let's imagine this friend of yours who's a savory enough character for you to be friends with. Let's, let's, let's imagine that they have a sister who is murdered, brutally. And let's imagine that the person who does this murder, we know exactly who they are, and the justice system has failed us and they've gotten off scot-free, whatever it is, they're out. And our friend knows who they are. Guess what our friend wants to do? Bring justice. They're gonna use their skills to execute justice. Now, you and I are going to say, we, I, please don't do this. I hope that we're going to say, please don't do this. Because otherwise you've gotten onto the judgment seat and you are willing to execute judgments. That's not our job. What are you going to say to your friend? Two wrongs don't make a right? His sister's been brutally murdered. Two wrongs don't make a right. Is that really going to hold them back? We could moralize them. If you do that, you'll be just like that person who murdered your sister. Maybe, maybe that would work, but it's moralizing, isn't it? Or to help them to understand, justice must come, but you are not that judge. Justice will come. There is a God who will judge. And I think that makes for a society where we're not running around executing judgment and payback and payback and payback. Because you pay back someone else, you've just paid back someone's brother, so they're gonna come and execute judgment on you. And it's payback, 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 payback. That's not gonna work. And so, even, you may think, you Christians and your idea of judgment, we need this idea of judgment. We need a solid theology of judgment for our own sanity and for a society that actually works. This is, this is helpful. Implications of understanding a day of judgment. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. When I know that if I was to stand on my own two feet on the day of judgment, 
it would be overs kadovas for me. And I understand that I have received forgiveness from God. I, it stops me from looking down at other people. Right? I have been rescued. I have been forgiven. I can't look down on Ingo. Oh, jeez. Jim. Oh, I shouldn't do that. I, I, no, I've received forgiveness. I wouldn't stand. Now I can stand because of Christ. Inga will stand because of Christ. Why am I executing judgment on her? So when Inga wrongs me, or Michiel wrongs me, or Glenn mocks me again, or whatever it is, and someone didn't invite me for lunch, what, I can forgive because I have been forgiven much. And if I withhold that, what if God withhold that against me? No, I'm, I'm in trouble then. It should cause us to forgive one another. It really should. It should also help me to acknowledge that there is one much better qualified to judge than me. On one hand, I've been forgiven. On the other hand, I'm a terrible judge. There is one much better qualified. Who am I? to withhold forgiveness from someone else. Now, that's hard, especially when you've been badly wronged. But I do believe that an understanding of this judgment day and, and the fact that we've been rescued as Christians, we're saved from that, should stir us towards forgiving one another. And surely, and I didn't write this, but it occurs to me, surely this should also motivate me to sharing good news. Right? There's bad news, but there's good news. And our, our friends and family and strangers, neighbors who don't know Jesus will stand on this judgment day one day. And am I being kind? And this is, this is hard. Now I'm preaching to myself here. Am I being kind by not talking about it? No, I don't think I am. So it, it certainly is that motivator. As someone who doesn't like, I don't, I don't like to step out and talk about it my faith to strangers. That's very difficult for me. But now I have this motivation, don't I? They will stand before Jesus one day and it is not kind of me to not talk about it with them. It's not kind. So, there is bad news and there's good news and there's implications. And those implications should be wonderful and encouraging and motivating. We get to forgive. We have peace kindness, there's freedom, there's motivation for sharing the gospel. This should shape how I live. And so I'd love to invite you to take communion. You've got these little cups on your chair, the little wafer, the bread reminds us that, that Jesus took on the judgments of God on our behalf. His body was broken. The juice reminds us of his blood being poured out. He died, brutally died. On our behalf, he took the judgments of God. And there's a twofold here. There's the bad news and the good news, isn't there? I, my actions, the state of me, required something as severe as Jesus' death on the cross. The state of your heart required Jesus' death for you. And so there, there's a moment in communion where there should be a, a sense of horror. There should be a sense of, this is terrible, this is severe. 
And there should be a sense of joy and gratitude. Jesus, you took this on for me so that I can have life. I can know the Father. My name can be written in a book of life because you've given me life. Not because I earned life. You brought me life. And so I want to invite you to take communion with this day of judgment in mind. And let it color that view in for you. If you are not a Christ follower, I want to encourage you to please not take this. This is deeply meaningful and profound. And yet, if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christ follower, if you, if you are feeling like, I've been that person where I've been trying to earn my way. I've been doing good, 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 good. And I've not received the sacrifice of Jesus. But if you want that sacrifice of Jesus, if there's something in you where you are deeply convicted and you know you will not stand, I encourage you to put your faith in Jesus. You don't have to tick boxes. You don't have to say certain things. It's as simple as saying, Jesus, I would not stand. I know it. Thank you that you died for me. And I accept that exchange. And I accept your life. And in that moment, right there, your name is written into that book. There's a profound spiritual miracle as God breathes new spiritual life in you. If you just acknowledge those things. And then I want to invite you, please do take communion. Profound and powerful and wonderful. And so please take communion. You are welcome to do it alone. You're welcome to do it in groups. We'll spend a couple of minutes. Please do business with God. Maybe there's an opportunity for you to repent of a sin. Maybe there's an opportunity for you to give someone, forgive someone. Maybe there's an opportunity for you to get up and ask someone to forgive you. I don't know what it is. Please do business with God. We'll spend a couple of minutes doing that. And then we'll sing one last song together as worship to the Lord. And then we'll close the meeting.